0: Welcome. My name is David Tukey. I'm here uh, as an impartial member of this discussion to moderate what goes on. Um, <clears throat> I represent Sustained Dialogue on Race Relations, a program which facilitates many discussion groups that meet on a regular basis to try to come to some some sort of closure and some sort of idea how to move best forward with race relations on this campus. Thank you all for coming. Um, Before we start everything else, uh, we would like to have a moment of silence for the victims of the tragedy of September 11th and the terrible hate crimes that have followed it. Thank you. Whenever two groups who have had some sort of conflict come together in order to have some, some sort of negotiation, it's important that both groups first understand exactly where the other group is coming from before the dialogue or the conversation can move forward. So today, at this teaching, we're gathered to try to gather information about the Middle East, about American policies generally so, discussions can follow where two groups are constructively conversing with each other instead of talking at each other. As we gradually deal with the shock following the recent tragedies, our anger, we, and as we grapple with our anger, we can still examine the events and the circumstances surrounding them in an attempt to better understand how and why they may have occurred. As Princeton students and faculty, we have recourse to invaluable resources, particularly the knowledge of some of the nation's most renowned professors. Four of Princeton's professors have generously agreed to offer their remarks to the Princeton community today. Dr. Carl Brown from the Near Eastern Studies Department. Dr. Richard A. Falk from the Woodrow Wilson School. Dr. Robert Gilpin from the Woodrow Wilson School and Dr. Robert L. Tigner from the History Department. After they speak, there will be a brief question-and-answer session, and tomorrow we will have several rooms in Frist from noon until 4 p.m. for discussion about the issues raised today. I'm now going to offer some ground rules for the question-and-answer session. In asking questions, participants must remember that, one, they represent only themselves. No participant can present the opinions or viewpoints of anyone else. Questions will be asked in a civil fashion. Recognizing that these matters are sensitive for all involved, there shall be neither mocking nor cheering nor taunting. Participants will respect the comfort of everyone in this room by being sure to express their opinion only in the form of courteous, insightful, and prudent questions. So without further ado, I... Pass the microphone over to our speakers. Oh, one other thing. Sorry. Um, When you have a question, please write it down and pass it to one of the people who will be walking up and down the aisles collecting the questions Oliver Williams. Please raise your hand. Um, Stacy Lau. All right. And John Gephardt. Very good.
1: I'm saddened to say that quite likely it's the very enormity and magnitude of September 11th that's brought us together because terrorism has been around for a long time. It's had a special entry in the index of the British, of the it's, uh, Britannica yearbook for at least 30 years. Ironically, an optimistic report in the, 19, in the 2000 yearbook. I think
2: people are having difficulty hearing you. So, hang on. Is. Oh, introduce yourself. Oh, who are you? Oh.
1: Can you hear me now? <laughs>
2: he, uh, they, want also they want to know who you, you are. To introduce yourself. To oh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm Carl Brown, emeritus professor in the program in Near Eastern Studies. It's the enormity and magnitude of this that brings us together. Uh, terrorism has been around a long time. As I noted, uh, for at least 30 years it's had its own special uh, entry in the index of the Britannica Book of the Year. There's an ironic comment in the, optim- uh, the optimistic report of the 2000-year Book of Britannica, that in 1999, only 233 people were killed and 706 wounded, whereas it was a bumper year in 1998 of 742 killed and almost 6,000 injured. That was largely the bombing of the American embassies in Nairobi and and in Tanzania. Those of us of my age certainly remember the names, and some of you, the the young, also know these. The IRA, Beider Mannhoff. The international terrorist, Carlos, in our own country, Oklahoma City, 19 April 1995. Of the 1960s, the Weathermen, the Students for Democratic uh, Society. In Japan, the Aum Shinriko, the Supreme Truth terrorist organization that uh, uh, released a deadly nerve gas in the subway of Tokyo, uh, in uh, uh, that year. Fortunately, only 12 people died, with some 5,000 people badly injured. And in our own Middle East, which is our focus, there was the terrorist bombing in the Israeli Lod Airport in May 1972, the massacre of Israeli athletes at the Olympics, uh, Olympics in Munich in 1972 as well, the bombing and killing of 241 U.S. Marines in Beirut, Lebanon, 1943, 1988, the Pan Am 103 destruction over uh, Lockerbie, Scotland, 270 killed. The following year, the uh, shooting down of a, uh, a bombing of a French plane uh, over Niger, with 170 killed. The bombing of the Dahran American military compound in June 1996, 19 killed, 500 wounded. The bombing, as I've mentioned, of our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. In the former, 257 killed, over 5,000 wounded, and in Tanganyika, some 11 killed and several hundreds wounded. More recently, the uh, bombing of the USS Cole off of uh, uh, Aden in uh, October of 2017, American sailors killed, 39 wounded. And efforts to counter terrorism through international cooperation, have been very sketchy and largely ineffective. One one thinks of the botched Israeli assassination attempt of a Hamas Hamas leader in the streets of Amman, Jordan. Uh, There's been, for years, efforts to bring together computerized data of possible, likely terrorists, terrorist terrorist suspects, with only uh, limited success. Even when some international action has been effective, it's been very, very slow indeed. For example, the uh, the bombing of Pan American Flight 103 took place in 1988. It was only nine years later that the government of Libya agreed to a very carefully circumscribed uh, trial, uh, and uh, uh, as of now, only one has been uh, convicted. One person has been convicted. We should remember that in 1998, after the bombing of the two American embassies, uh, UN sanctions, UN sanctions, were imposed against Afghanistan, unless and until bin Laden was turned over to international authorities. So, in a word, terrorism has been with us a long time, and taking care of it, bringing it to heel, won't be easy and won't be quick. We will need the support of the West, of course, but also clearly the support of the world's Muslims whatever we do we must avoid Samuel Huntington's prognosis of a clash of civilizations now let me just very quickly almost uh, chop chop categorical fashion put it to you this way most Islamicists most fundamentalists are not terrorists most Muslims are not Islamicists but virtually all Muslims will react negatively to that horrible euphemism, collateral damage, or to exemplary punishment that will harm great numbers of Muslim peoples in Muslim countries. And virtually all Muslims, to a greater or lesser extent, have a sense of a U.S. and Western tilting, prejudiced, impl- uh, uh, imposing of double standards in their diplomatic dealings with Muslim countries and Muslim peoples. I put it to you. I'm not going to get into the question of whether that's a justified rap or not. We can do that in our discussion and perhaps even more tomorrow. But I think we have to take that as a given, that sort of sense of, of being manipulated by the outside world. Now, I think we need to look to a cooperation with the world's Muslims, for obvious, for, both for very pragmatic reasons and for moral reasons. The pragmatic reasons is, after all, Muslims constitute somewhat more than one billion of the world's population. There are six Muslims for every ten Christians in the world. There are more Muslims than Catholics. Muslims outnumber Protestants by almost three to one. Islam is the largest religion by far in the entire Afro-Asian area. Further narrowing down to what is of greater uh, uh, immediate moment to us, the Arabs, uh, Muslim Arabs, constitute at most 20 percent, slightly, possibly slightly more, of the world's Muslims. And by the way, uh, over 90 percent of the Arabic-speaking peoples are Muslim. The remainder being uh, Christian. The majority of the world's Muslims, this is a surprise to many people, are east of the Middle East. That is to say, they're east of Iran. So there's a lot of different Muslims out there that we need to deal with. Also, there are great numbers of Muslims living and working in throughout Europe, especially in recent decades since the Second World War they've been there. And, of course, as we now come to realize, we, the United States, are also a Muslim country with a population in the, roughly in the neighborhood of 7 million uh, uh, people. Now, uh, the Muslim states and peoples, like so many third-world countries, have their share of difficulties. Decolonization, which Professor Tigner will be addressing, I believe, uh, has has taken place, but there's still a sense of being dominated by outsiders and especially by us. There are great problems. There's great differences of wealth. The per capita income of the United Arab Emirates is over $20,000. The per capita income of Sudan is $300 a year. There are many harsh military regimes. There have been terrible wars in the Middle East. We tend to forget the eight-year war between Iraq and Iran, the many different Arab-Israeli wars, the civil wars, the horrible civil wars in Sudan, Algeria, Lebanon, many coups, and the Islamic revolution in Iran, the breakup of Pakistan to create just what was originally Western Pakistan, now Pakistan, and Bangladesh. There's been a, a whole rash of great social, political, economic military problems for this part of the world to deal with. And a lot of this, again, I'm not getting into how accurate or how fair that is, a lot of it is centered on seeing us as, if not the major cause behind it, only I think rather more simplistic and radical people look at it that way, but there's a strong pervasive sense that we have not, our policies have not been as helpful as they might be. So. I will stop there just to point out that we have that kind of challenge to deal with that I would argue very strongly we simply cannot be effective in making our country secure and making other people secure without eliciting soliciting taking advantage of the the, the trauma the shock that exists worldwide right now in deliberate, careful ways to bring along not just our European allies, not just other parts of the world but the peoples, the states of the Muslim world as well. And that's going to be a difficult task, but I think we can and must try to do it.
2: My name is Richard Falk. Uh, I'm an emeritus professor in the Woodrow Wilson School and uh, the Department of Politics. Uh, Let me first uh, commend those that uh, organized this event today. I think it's very important for all of us to have these opportunities to uh, respond to these terrible events of September 11th. I want first to express my sense of how to understand the gravity of what occurred on September 11th. And I think it needs to be uh, approached on three different levels as the greatest terrorist atrocity in history, as a massive crime against humanity associated with a murderous assault on civilian innocence, and as, and finally as an attack upon this country, what has sometimes been called a terrorist Pearl Harbor, that gives rise to a mood and perspective of war and self-defense. And what I want to emphasize is that a response to, the, to this attack has to address all three of these dimensions of what occurred. And that it has to be understood in its distinctive essence as a war without a military solution, without territorial real territorial dimensions without an adversary that can be destroyed directly and but and in relation to an enemy that is likely to be strengthened by a militarist overreaction. In other words, this is a very uh, unprecedented challenge posed that for which we don't have the categories of understanding nor the moral and political imagination to comprehend it, much less to fashion a response that will be both effective and legitimate. And if it is not both effective and legitimate, it will fail. I think there are also two words that are helpful to reflect upon in relation to this tragedy, technology and humiliation. Technology in this setting matched the primitive technology of the perpetrators, box cutters and simple knives blended with political and religious fanaticism in a setting that was able to appropriate the high technology of commercial jet aircraft and convert it into weaponry of mass destruction. And it is that uh, Interplay between the, the low technology of the weak in the world penetrating the high technology of the strong and turning it as a weapon that can be used by the weak against the strong. And humiliation. Is, I think, the most direct way to appreciate the reason why there is so much anti American resentment in large portions of the world, and particularly in the Islamic world, and especially in the Arab portions of the Islamic world. And that resentment is fueled by many uh, different uh, sources. It is uh, a consequence of a global structure in which the United States is rich and powerful and these peoples feel helpless and exploited. It is a consequence of a series of lost wars where a small country, Israel, has managed to impose its will on the entire Arab world. And since that cannot be accepted as the explanation, Many of those in the Islamic world believe that Israel's potency is a consequence of, it, of its relationship to the United States. And this humiliation has to be understood also in relation to the reality that the only effective resistance against this Perception of Western and American led subjugation has come from the mobilization of Islamic forces. Initially, the Iranian Revolution, and more recently, the Hezbollah uh, victory in southern Lebanon, and the capacity of uh, this terrorist network to inflict such major damage on this colossal superpower that dominates the world. In other words, Islam, in its militant expression, has been the only answer that especially large portions of the Arab world have found for their experience of humiliation. They have no confidence in their own governments that they regard as passive, as degenerate, as allied to their enemy. And so the path from humiliation to some kind of self-esteem has been associated with this Islamic resurgence. Finally, I think it's very important to recognize, in thinking about the use of force in response to this attack, that there are three main ideas that have uh, often Uh, guided those with the responsibility for decision. The first of these is pacifism, the sense that war is itself an evil and that nonviolence is the only way of pursuing uh, just ends. One has to say that in the context of our political culture, in such an international interaction, this pacifist perspective is not of relevance. We cannot imagine a, an acceptable response by a pacifist led uh, foreign policy. Of course, with the present occupants of the White House, it's not a great worry that that's about to happen. But the point is that it is uh, irrelevant to understanding the foundation of a response. The second uh, main tradition is the just war tradition that's been incorporated into international law and essentially says that where force is used, it must respect civilian innocence. And if the essence of terrorism is the refusal to respect civilian innocence, it is of essential it is essential that the response not resemble the attack. And for that to happen, there has to be a consistent and diligent refusal to use our powers of destruction against those who are perceived as innocent from the perspective of what was perpetrated on September 11th. The third approach is that of holy war or sacred war, which in effect uh, says that the other is evil and can be destroyed by any means and that all that are not allied with us are suitable targets for destruction. And this has been generally rejected in this crisis, thankfully. But there are some worrying signs. When our president talked of a crusade against global terrorism, it resonates, especially in the Islamic world, with the historical memory of the crusades. And when the code name of the operation is shifted to infinite justice, one has to worry about whether any human institution can ever, without committing itself some kind of idolatry, uh, pursue a course that is infinite, isn't that itself entering into the domain of fundamentalism and uh, a kind of unconditionality about our motives and our means? And so we have to be careful in trying to fashion a, a response consistent with just war principles and with international law and the United Nations Charter, that we do not, in our anger, enter into this treacherous domain of political absolutism that would reproduce the kind of fanaticism associated with the terrorist network that has mounted this attack. Thank you very much.
3: I call this meeting... Bringing out the old men. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to start off by thanking the uh, map department and the par- Department of uh, Geology for building these these maps, uh, maps to us. My name is Robert Gilpin. I'm a retired professor of international relations, and I'm also a retired naval officer. After the tragic events of September 11th, which I don't need to talk about the world will never be the same. Um, And already the question is being asked, who is responsible for these events? Some say it's the Muslim world, that Islam has declared war against the great Satan, and we are now in a war of civilization versus civilization. Others say it's possibly the Jews, because they uh, have bound us to Israel, and we are now paying the price. Still others say it's we Americans ourselves, that we have fallen away from God, that we are corrupt, materialistic, we are godless, and the Christian God, or Allah, is punishing us for our materialistic ways. The administration's response thus far uh, its energetic response, I I to punish these crimes against the United States and humanity, I strongly support, but I have certain worries over the long term and it will be, I'm afraid, a very long term. We Americans want quick results. We get impatient when things don't go our way. We tend to go on moral crusades, as Professor Falk mentioned earlier. We are often arrogant, and we have preached to the rest of the world too often, and they resent it. Uh, we must learn patience, humility. We must realize we can always, not always have our own way, and we must make sure that foreign policy serves our interest over the long term. The closest thing that I know to a battle hymn or a hymn of this country when we go to war is the battle hymn of the Republic which was sung by Union soldiers as they marched into battle during our Civil War. This was sung uh, at the National Cathedral after, at the end of the conclusion of the Day of Remembrance, when President Bush announced that we were going to war. I'd like to read you one sentence from the Battle Hymn of the Republic. He, the Lord, has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. And I repeat, his terrible swift sword. Our president has unsheathed the terrible swift sword, and it will not be put back into its scabbard until our enemies are cut down. But I am worried. The doctrine of the terrible swift sword is embedded in our nation's psychology and foreign policy, uh, a psychology about war. It was planted there during the century-long war against the native peoples of this land. The purpose of war, according to this doctrine, is to smite and annihilate our enemies. Therefore, I shudder when a very high Pentagon official threatens to annihilate certain societies. Our doctrine of the terrible Swiss sword is very different from the European tradition of statecraft, learned over a thousand years of dealing with one another and, I would add, dealing with the Middle East. We are relatively inexperienced in international affairs. The European tradition is that the purpose of war is to achieve a political purpose, or, as the great German strategist, Klaus von, uh, I mean, Klaus von, said, war is a pursuit of foreign policy by other means. War is fought to achieve, or at least should be thought to achieve, political objectives. Today, our nation has yet to define what our objectives are in going to war. Is our purpose merely to destroy Osama bin Laden and his allies and then be done with it? Is it to root out all of the many terrorist organizations around the world, including those terrorist organizations that are given financial and other support by our fellow Americans? Or is it to lay the foundations, or begin to lay the foundations, of a greatly changed world and to begin in earnest the immense task of eliminating the conditions that breed terrorists, that is, injustice, hopelessness, poverty around the world? While defining what we seek to achieve in this war, the United States must also make some, I think, some very fundamental changes. We can no longer afford the unilateralism that was displayed by our government at the Kyoto uh, Conference on Global Warming. We cannot be so arrogant, think we are the arrogant superpower who feel we can run the world. We need friends. We can no longer afford an educational system, especially institutions of higher learning, that fail to educate Americans about the world in which we live and the history of how we got there. We must become much more informed about many aspects of the history, culture, and traditions of the Western world. How many Americans know the difference between Sunni and Shiite Muslims? How many Americans know that Sikhs are not with their turbans, are not Muslims. Or that Turkey, a Muslim country, is our military ally, and also I'd add a military ally of Israel. Or that Pakistan, also a Muslim country, has been a close friend of the United States and that its leaders risked their lives in going to Afghanistan to try to convince the Taliban. We cannot use ill-considered language at, as we have, uh, such as it is necessary to end certain states. Nations must be with us or they're against us. Uh, We uh, must not use the language which Professor Falk mentioned of a crusade. I'm proud of the spirit and heroism by other uh, fellow Americans in facing this tragedy, but we must avoid extremes. Indeed, I think we must follow the example of our Secretary of State Colin Powell and his calm and measured language. My last words are, prepare for the worst, hope for the best.
4: Uh, My name is Robert Tignor. I'm a not yet retired professor of history. (laughs) Uh, I want to associate myself uh, with the cautions that have been offered by the other speakers so far this afternoon, especially that we not be ruled by emotions, though at this particular moment of intense grief and mourning, uh, the consequence of those horrific events of Tuesday a week ago, it is difficult not to be ruled by emotions. The American government and the American people, and we are, after all, a democracy, need to exercise restraint even at this particular moment when, as we have already observed, impulsive actions can easily produce regrettable results. At moments of crisis, governments need to be meticulous in gathering information Democratic states need to inform their citizens about the decisions that they intend to make. And I feel that our government thus far has not informed us well at all. In fact, I'm far more confused and uncertain as to what exactly happened Tuesday a week ago, who was responsible, and what was the message I devoutly hope that President Bush this evening will make some of these matters clearer to us than they have been in the past. Historians like to analogize when trying to make sense of what seem to be incomprehensible, confusing contemporary events. And many people have invoked the analogy of Pearl Harbor. It has, in a way, been invoked uh, this afternoon, it was a terroristic Pearl Harbor. In fact, the loss of life I was astonished to learn at the World Trade Center was double that It took place at Pearl Harbor. The pictures of destruction carried by television made an even more daunting and devastating impact on our consciousness as a people than those arrived that arrived somewhat later from the scene of destruction at Pearl Harbor. Unfortunately, I think, the Pearl Harbor analogy has encouraged government officials and the media immediately to employ a war vocabulary and to promote bellicose policies. We see we're barraged by radio and television announcements telling us that we are at war, that we have been attacked, that America is under attack, that America needs to gear for war. But again, speaking uh, from a historical perspective, if this is war, it is unlike any war that the United States has fought in the 20th century. America's 20th century wars, leaving aside the Cold War and focusing on World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and the war in Vietnam, brought the American government and its people into conflict with clear-cut, easily designated enemy governments, having clearly delineated territorial and other aims. At the present moment, and this is the confusion that troubles me so greatly, the United States government has been unable to identify with real clarity its adversaries. I actually prefer the word adversaries to enemies. Don't ask me exactly why. Just that's, That word enemy doesn't seem to ring quite right with me. And especially to determine what the aims of these men and women are. The combatants in 20th century wars have usually been candid about who they were and what their ambitions and goals were. In contrast, in frustrating contrast, no one has yet come forward to claim responsibility for the carnage at the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, or, as far as I can see, is likely to do so. In addition, we are left with the problem of trying to sort out why these violent and war provoking steps were taken the crucial questions that will determine american and world responses to these actions are what groups carried out these actions what motivated them to do so it appears as if our government has already begun to formulate answers to these questions so again, I complain that they haven't made their formulations or their evidence very clear. For them, terrorism is the work of fanatical men and women who have twisted the teachings of Islam and have come under the spell and financial power of a maniacal leader, Osama bin Laden, and possibly others like him. If that's the answer, then it's clear to me that the response is to root out these terrorist cells, capture, bring to trial, and or kill bin Laden, in the process, hopefully only temporarily, abridging the country's civil rights. But, but let me suggest that there may be other ways to view these recent events. The smashing of the World Trade Center and the destruction at the Pentagon, represent more than a small band of fanatical Muslim terrorists. To my way of thinking, this marks a fundamental shift in the socioeconomic and political map of the world. Indeed, these horrific events are a violent political response from elements in the world community who feel themselves economically and politically marginalized. At the end of World War II, the world divided itself into three, uh, parts where socioeconomic realities coincided roughly with geographical and political boundaries. There was the first world led by the United States, capitalist, democratic, prosperous. There was a second world led by the Soviet Union, aspiring to the prosperity and the power also critical of some of the inequities in the first world, and believing that it could catch up and create a better world via strict party organization and planned economic development. There was the third world emerging from colonialism, but equally full of optimism about its prospects of exercising, for the first time, independent power and achieving economic growth and political stability. In short, it was a very dangerous world, as you all know, in which to live. These were optimistic but often belligerent uh, worldviews. But it was a time of considerable optimism. By the end of the 20th century, this structure, this division of, of the world into three units, These structures of wealth and power, poverty and powerlessness, had changed unalterably. The wealth that spread across the globe in the last two decades enriched peoples in the first world even more, led ultimately, I would argue, to political revolutions in the second world. In the third world, it also generated wealth, but it produced glaring disparities of wealth and power. Third world elites now enjoy standards of wealth that exist in Europe and North America. They exercise real economic and political power. One needs only to visit the major cities on the African continent Cairo, Nairobi, Lagos, and Cape Town, uh, to see the wealth and the privilege that the small uh, group is able to enjoy. This is, after all, the poorest continent still in the world. Yet the elites in this part of the world want for nothing. Alas, the rising tide of capitalist development and wealth generation has not pulled everyone along. In many countries around the world, and not just the third world, these disparities in income, power, and life chances no longer seem tolerable to people. Think of the seemingly uncontrollable spread of AIDS across the African continent. What has happened at first gradually and now rapidly in the last two decades is that the three-world division of the globe that held sway in the 1950s has given way to a two-world division with many intermediate gradations. And these divisions are no longer geographical, as they were, Europe and North America versus the rest, or political, the first versus the second versus the third, but they are really, truly socioeconomic, between the haves and the have-nots. First world values and aspirations exist alongside third world poverty and powerlessness in glaring ways within the third world, just as, in fact, third world despair exists alongside unbelievable wealth and privilege in the first world. Some have benefited beyond their wildest... Dreams from global economic growth. Others have been left behind and feel excluded. To my way of thinking, these gross disparities in income, in life chances, in the exercise of power are root causes for terrorist behavior. If they are not treated in a concerted and global way through all of the instrumentalities of the world community, and here I refer to the United Nations, to the World Bank, to the International Monetary Fund, and to numerous nongovernmental organizations, surgical military strikes against terrorist cells and leaders will be ineffective. It is, I think, well to remember that terrorism is, after all, the weapon of the weak. It is a weapon that is invoked when all else appears to have failed. Thank
3: you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for all the questions. The format of the question and answer session will be uh, that I will read the question and if it is directed to one particular professor, that particular professor will answer. If it is directed to the panel at large, Uh, Whichever member of the panel which would most like to answer the question uh, can volunteer to answer it. Um, Thank you. Hmm. The first question is... By the way, um, before I get started with questions and answers, there will be uh, information about the discussions that will go on about this tomorrow um, after the question and answer session is over. If anyone desires to leave before that but is still interested in those discussions, uh, please talk to Sally El-Sadek over there, there's Sally, um, as you're leaving. Okay, first question. If the United States did not retaliate, how would this affect their military image in the world and what would be the negative reactions to such a decision?
2: Of course, there's enormous pressure to do something but mindless retaliation is worse than no retaliation. And so it is, I think, essential, as I tried to say, that one finds an effective and legitimate basis for using force. That may be a difficult, frustrating process, but if we have the kind of leadership that gives us the understanding, as was suggested uh, by Bob Tigner, of what is at stake here and how to pursue the legitimate goals, then I think there will be an uh, admiration for the United States for not retaliating in a uh, mindless, reflexive way. But if we are immobilized and do nothing, then I think it would indeed uh, undermine respect for the United States in the world. But the danger I see is uh, mindless retaliation, excessive force, irrelevant violence, uh, generating additional terrorists and additional resentment about the U.S. role in the world.
4: Could I just say something on that? I, I mean, I don't see why the United States cannot use uh, the instrumentalities of, of the world legal system, uh, of, of laws and courts, uh, to, to, to see whether uh, something useful can be done. If those uh, instruments uh, don't prove to be effective, then it seems to me that you can move on to something else. But, uh, I mean, here, crimes have certainly been committed. We need to trot out the evidence. Do you people really know who did this? Uh, I don't. I mean, I, I got 19 names uh, of the hijackers, uh, and uh, those that I saw, I wasn't sure whether they were real names or aliases. Uh, at, at a certain point, I didn't know the nationalities of many of the hijackers. Uh, I assumed that many of them were Muslims, because at least they, they seem to come from Muslim families, because the, uh, one of the names was Muhammad, but I had obviously no knowledge about their personal religious beliefs. I think we're going really fast on this one. Um, and I would like to have a little more information before making a decision about what sort of action is called for, military or non-military.
3: Um, may I speak? Sure. Um, I agree with uh, both. I agree with both colleagues, but I'm not sure uh, President Bush has much has much time. Um, I think there's a lot of calling for blood, and um, he's, I don't know how long he can forestall, or I should say, uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell can forestall. Mm-hmm. Uh, those who want to take um, to to take action as you know um nato has invoked article 5 uh first time it's ever invoked uh to for the that the, that they declared that the attack on new york and washington is a attack on all the members of nato uh, uh the americans have rejoiced in this and said good our allies have come uh to our assistance I think there's another interpretation of this NATO invoking of Article 5, and that is invoking that article gives the NATO alliance some influence, some role in order to control America's response. Uh, they, uh, they want any response of the United States to be within NATO. They don't like the way we conducted ourselves, for example, in the war in Yugoslavia. They don't trust us. Uh they want to have some control over American policy. And I think uh there are many people said we should go through the United Nations. Uh I think uh this we would uh, we I think we'll reject Unless uh, the NATO puts tremendous screws on us, that we will reject uh, any effort of NATO to uh, control our military and our response, and I think the same thing would be true of the United Nations. We will not have any restraints, uh, I'm afraid, on American retaliation.
0: Thank you.. Sure. Second question, in a bit of contrast. Although we have now declared a war on terrorism, we have not declared a war on the environment that facilitates terrorism. Terrorism emanates from a sense of frustration in which the only avenue of action is terrorism. Can a war on terrorism be complete without addressing this issue?
1: Uh, No, of course it cannot. But I do think we want to keep in mind uh, one aspect the people who committed those horrible deeds on September 11th killed themselves in the process. This makes for a qualitative difference in what we're dealing with. And the one thing I think we want to be very careful, I think each of us in our way, in our own way, has, has, has tried to make this point, of uh, separating out the terrorists who would do these kinds of things, who can perhaps best be described just in the clinical use of the term as fanatics, as millenarian fanatics, uh, who have the possibility of gaining at least a certain amount of residual sympathy by the great numbers of people throughout the world, especially throughout the Muslim world, but who can be, with the proper kind of response, seen as just beyond the limits of of, of the way conflict uh, go, is carried out and is, let us hope, resolved. So, uh, of course, we we. I guess what I'm groping for is what I've said before: uh, not all Muslims are Islamists, not all Muslims are fundamentalist, and not all Islamists are terrorist. And we're talking about a small group of terrorists, and in terms of who we're trying to seek out, many of those who were clearly the perpetrators are no longer with us. They're dead.
0: A a quick factual question uh, for Carl Brown. You distinguish between Muslim and Islamicist. What is the difference? I'm sorry. You distinguish between Muslim and Islamicist. What is the difference?
1: Uh, in, in common parlance these days, it's not a completely happy uh, acceptance, but you know, um, Muslims themselves use Islamist or fundamentalist, or the French say anti-Christ, to talk about those who are especially uh, 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 given to a a a very uh, stern doctrine of of, of return to the the Sharia of of a different moral code, a very rigorous and, I would say, uh, distorted uh, uh, interpretation uh, of Islam and Islamic law. So that's really uh, the way I was using the term in in the common parlance of those who are, maybe it's a little bit more familiar to us, they're fundamentalist.
0: Very good. This question addressed to the panel at large. Um, Does it make sense to talk of terrorism as a unitary problem? Wouldn't it make more sense to look at specific instances of terrorism as political and to try to understand the politics of this extreme and tragic form of protest on a case by case, country by country basis?
3: I'm not, obviously not a, an expert on, on terrorism, um, but um, my understanding is that all of these terrorist organizations have links, share resources, intelligence, uh, and I was told by a ex very high official of the United States government, if you're going to go after terrorism, you have to go over, you have to go after all terrorism, and as I said, even those terrorist organizations that are financed by this country.
2: Uh, if I can just add one uh, additional element, I think, the, I think it is important to try to uh, identify the distinctive features of any particular terrorist uh, action or organization. Uh, first, to understand its motivations and its tactics, its uh, foundations of strength. Uh, but I think what uh, Bob Gilpin just said is an important uh, development in the in the nature of terrorism, that it's become a global, globally embedded and interconnected uh, challenge to the established order. That's quite different from our uh, image of uh, terrorist movements in particular countries that are seeking uh, a radical shift in uh, the established order of a given state, the kind of uh, role the IRA played in Ireland. Most terrorist organizations in, that we've been familiar with have had national objectives, essentially. They've, they've uh, sought uh, to reconstitute the, ne- the political life of a given country. What uh, Osama bin Laden has been very clear about is that his concern is not with a country, but with a civilization. And in that sense, there is this very, uh, great, uh, and dangerous temptation to, uh, uh, understand the challenge in these, intercivilizational uh, inter-civilizational terms, uh, and, uh, to lapse into a kind of Huntington, uh, discourse of, uh, clash of civilizations, which would be a disaster for us and for the other peoples of the world. Just one other point about this. Uh, only in the 1990s did the tactics of terrorism, starting with the bombing, the first bombing of the Trade Center in 1993, seek to kill a lot of people. Terrorism traditionally has not been like an uh, instrument of war. It's been an, a shock tactic by those that were disempowered, trying to shake the system in some way so that it would respond. But that's why I think you have to understand this attack, not only from the perspective of terrorism traditionally conceived, but as a means of waging war against the United States. And that's why it's such a difficult uh, uh, challenge to comprehend and
0: interpret. Okay. In light of that, many questions have been raised by this administration about the restrictions on the CIA's recruiting of foreign agents who have violated human rights violations, and on the law preventing the CIA from carrying out assassinations. Do you think that, given the recent events of September 11th, these laws will be changed? hence allowing CIA field officers to recruit foreign spies who have committed human rights violations and or give the CIA power to assassinate again. Do you think this solution would be effective?
3: This is obviously a question for Professor
4: Todd.
3: <laughs> 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 He's a lawyer. Uh,
2: I think there's great pressure to move in these directions. I think it will be... Uh, um, it, I think one needs to distinguish between the uh, the the intelligence-gathering, expansion of CIA's uh, uh, capabilities, and the covert operation aspect. I think it would be extremely damaging to the legitimacy of our response if we were to be seen to authorize political assassinations. But I don't feel the same way about penetrating organizations that are planning to engage in these kinds of mega terrorist uh, undertakings. Uh, So I hope we can draw that distinction. Uh, Political assassination, I think, is a very dangerous tactic, because we always think we are assassinating them. But remember, they can think they might assassinate us. Once you, once you initiate a practice, you create a precedent. And it's not a happy precedent. Hmm?
4: She says it's counter-terror.
2: Counter-terror, yes.
0: The comment was that it was counter-terror. All right. Next question. If if you have a question, if you could please write it down and pass it to the front. Thank you. You're welcome. Another factual question. Um, Did the bad bad feelings of the al-Qaeda terrorist network and Osama bin Laden not date from the stationing of U.S. troops in Saudi Arabia during Operation Desert Storm in 1991 and 1992?
1: That's certainly the, the clear statement that bin Laden himself has, has made, and I think that uh, uh, certainly did uh, uh, was, was a major factor in moving him to, uh, to the direction he's taken. That's clear, factual answer to the question.
0: All right. This one asking about our nation's paradox at the moment. <clears throat> Our prestige as a superpower depends on our resolve and, oh, and our desire to use force. I think that's desire. Our prestige also depends upon the values we stand for democracy, rule of law, due process. Are we, quote, darned if we do and darned if we don't? Is there a solution to our government's dilemma?
1: well there 's no easy or quick solution. I think that 's what we 've all been saying uh, in many ways. The metaphor of war, several of us from different perspectives have pointed out that maybe that 's not quite the right way to put it uh, the The metaphor of police action. Uh, getting back to the earlier, earlier question about CIA of counterintelligence, which is a, which is clandestine action, but it's not what we normally think of as covert action of overthrowing governments, assassinating leaders, and so on. It's simply doing what any metropolitan police does. It, it keeps in touch with the so-called criminal element in order to infiltrate them, penetrate them, find out what's going on. We yes, we need to work very hard on that, and I put it to you that doing that. Can be done within the rule of law. Now, not that all of our metropolitan police forces have been squeaky clean in doing that, but at least it's it's possible, and it's the least we can expect of our uh, of our security forces in in protecting us. Uh, Okay.
3: Um, It's very hard to, as the writer, uh, the question said, to to um, somehow reach this compromise between. Um, war and and democracy. Um, They don't mix well. Um, I recommend to you a book by the um, uh, Chief Justice of the United States, uh, Rehnquist, uh, published not too long ago when he dealt with this issue of civil liberties in time of war. And he took three uh, episodes. One was Lincoln's suppression of liberties and uh we would I don't think we'd tolerate today what Lincoln did uh during the Civil War then there was a suppression of uh, of civil liberties during uh Princeton's uh contribution to the nation Woodrow Wilson during the First World War and then there was also uh, of Roosevelt in the uh, uh Second World War and of course uh, some aspects of that, like the uh, internment of, of Jap- Japanese uh, is a shame on our, on our country. It is very careful. I mean, it is very difficult to, do, to draw this line. And um, I um, and, uh, and as Rehn- Rehnquist, he's not the man you would expect to write such a book, mm-hmm. uh, uh, said this is always oh, a danger in, in war that we will give up our basic liberties. And I think it's extraordinarily important to try to uh, retain what we believe in uh, and, um, and yet at the same time have the tools, the weapons to deal with um, enemies in our midst.
4: Could I just say a little something on that one? Um, I guess I'm the anti-alarmist and from what I've read, uh, this particular act was, could have been prevented that there was there was lax, laxness at the, secure, uh, at the airport. Uh, and also, I, I would presume that in the future, it will really be quite impossible for a group of skyjackers to do this again. Uh, there will be certain actions that will be taken. Now, maybe there are other, you know, more disturbing plans out there, suicidal plans, I mean, the germ warfare and the, the putting of... of of all kinds of things in the water supply. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Again, I would like to be better informed on some of these things before we begin to give over our civil rights uh, to a group of people in Washington to wage a war against a, so far, pretty faceless enemy uh, and uh, a set of countries that may or may not be supporting uh, these terrorist
2: actions. If I could just add one thing to what uh, Bob Gilpin said, because I think it it, it goes back to his main uh, set of comments. see I think why it 's very particularly difficult for the United States to reconcile uh, war and democracy is this attitude toward war that it has, the way it wages war that that uh, it does have this kind of unrestrained Uh, Quality and does go back, as he pointed out, to the model of war-making that was used against the American Indians and has this kind of exterminist uh, characteristic about it. We, much more than our allies in World War II, were insistent upon unconditional surrender. And, of course, it's possible that had we accepted a surrender resembling what occurred in the Pacific uh, Ocean, the atomic bomb might never have been used. Hiroshima and Nagasaki might not be part of our uh, lexicon of horrors when we think back uh, to uh, that period in our history.
3: Um, We're going to take one more question, and then um, if anybody wants to ask more questions after that, you're more than welcome to. Um, And also, tomorrow the discussion groups are from 12 to 4 at First Campus Center. Um, When you go there, there will be signs posted in all the entryways with what what rooms specifically you can go to. Um, And I think that's
1: about it. So thank you for coming.
0: Okay, so last question. Benjamin Netanyahu said today, before a committee of Congress, that we must not, in the short term, give ourselves headaches over the root causes of terrorism, because terrorism is evil, no matter what the motivation, just as Nazism was evil, regardless of the motivation behind it. Do you think that in the short term, addressing what we perceive to be the root causes of the terrorist acts is appropriate, or is that just like negotiating with terrorists?
1: I don't think there's any uh, realistic uh, option of negotiating with uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, his followers at a certain point. One would, I think, the kind of strategy that seemingly we, all of us in one way or another are suggesting might well cause some of the fringe members of, of Bin laden 's organization to drop out at a certain, along the way, but i again the more I try to take the measure of people who are so caught up in their mission that they will work and plan for literally years in, on an act in which they themselves take their life their own life that is a form of 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 uh, dedication, I guess I should use the word certainly fanaticism, that I don't think is negotiable and I think these people are due to that, for that reason to that extent, constitute a danger and we must be aware of that as we've all said in being aware of it and responding to it and reacting to it we don't want to become the, the mirror image of doing what they've done of mass murder in public places, which a 19th century anarchist put it as the wave of the future. Uh, if, I, I think
2: there are two uh, useful ways, two metaphors that capture some of the debate about what to do in response. One conceives of the terrorist challenge as a cancer that should be dealt with surgically and can be removed from an otherwise healthy global body politic. The second is to think of terrorism as the tip of an iceberg and that the removal of the visible part of the iceberg only defers the fundamental challenge. And Netanyahu's prescription is definitely in, uh, in the direction of the first metaphor, And I believe we have to have the maturity to deal both with the tip of the iceberg and what's submerged. And what's submerged is what we've been calling the root causes.
0: Good. Very good. Can we have a hand for our speakers?
1: Ja, die wir